Our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Amen. The Christian poet George Herbert wrote this. He said, I wept when I was born, and every day shows why. There's quite a lot of pain in the world, isn't there? Uh, a lot of pain in our nation right now, and in many ways our, our great nation seems more divided than ever. It's hard to trust people, institutions, right? It's hard to trust, for example, uh, banks, right? When it seems like you giveth and they taketh away. Uh, hard to trust the government when it seems like liberty and justice seem to be for some, but not for all. Uh, hard to trust the media when we Photoshop magazine covers and call it truth, right? Uh, it's, that's just the stuff uh, on the outside of us. It's hard to trust institutions, right? Churches too sometimes. Um, uh, but what about the stuff on the inside of us? What, what about what drives our, uh, our skyrocketing uh, suicide rate in our country? What about what drives our skyrocketing drug addiction in our nation? What about all the anger that seems to be overtaking social media, right? I mean, you, you, you post a, an article somebody does about a cat or a kite or a, you know, a, a party somewhere and people are getting mad about it. It's like every story is a platform for someone's outrage. You know, there's a reason people check their screens on their devices more than 110 times a day. What are they looking for? What are, what are we looking for in all of this? It's clear we're looking for something, right? Because you don't go to your cabinet every day and open it 110 times. Unless you're looking for something. You don't vent your anger on complete strangers. Unless you're looking for something. You don't put chemicals in your body to the point of despair. Unless you're looking for something. What are we looking for? I think, I think the Bible says, we're looking for hope. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a kind of a hope. Uh, when Jesus Christ, when Jesus was raised from a dead, his first followers, original followers, they called him the first fruits. How about that? First fruits. Meaning he was the installment, the first down payment of what was to come, the first bit of the future here in the present. It was a way of saying, by calling them the first fruits, it was a way of saying, here is all that we've longed for, all that we could ever hope for, even though it sounds like it's too good to be true. Here it is, and Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, is proof of all that. That's what they meant. So I want to submit to you today 
that this, what you just had read to you, that's what you're looking for. That's what those original disciples were looking for when they looked at Jesus. And so what I'm going to suggest to you is if you'll see this rightly, Revelation 21 rightly, you can have a hope that never fades, that never spoils, that will never perish. This hope is called the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to take a look at that right now. So let's ask the question, what are the new heavens and the earth? What is that concept? First, we're going to look at what it is. We're going to look at what it means. We're going to look at why we need it. And finally, fourthly, how we get it. Let's begin in number one and just ask the question, well, what are the new heavens and the new earth? You know, the whole Bible, if you've never picked up on it, the whole Bible drips with hints, uh, pointers, arrows. Look at these couple of Easter eggs hidden for you back in the prophets. Isaiah 65, uh, God says to Isaiah, he says, see, I will create, oh, looky here, new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Is this sounding familiar? Nor will they come to mind. Look at this other, again, Easter egg. Micah 4, same stuff. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established. It's the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Famous words here. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. Don't you long for that. Nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. I could go on like this for an hour. See, these prophets, they were seeing something that John's declaring, yes, it will happen. What are the new heavens and the new earth? Jesus Christ himself tells you. He like drops it casually, like he's just making casual conversation. Matthew 19, he's talking to his disciples. He says, one day, he says, your translation says, there's going to be a renewal of all things. Now, our translation says renewal of all things. Your eyes glaze over. You don't know what it's saying. It's because the Greek word is a funky, awesome word at the same time. It's the word palingenesia. Jesus literally says, one day, there's going to be a new genesis. A Genesis again. There's going to be, did you, did you catch that? There's going to be a Genesis again. There it is. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are. New Genesis, a new Eden, a new garden. That's what John says. That's what's coming. And so if you'll catch this right, rightly here, I want to tell you, it's going to change the way you see everything about the future, about what Christianity is, because the prophets saw, Jesus said, now John sees here that the future of the world is not the Greek version. Disembodied souls, diapers, angels, harps, clouds, floating, Not it. Nowhere in scripture. Look what that he says here. I saw, verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. John's telling you, the future of the earth is not eventually you escaping. Everything returning. God's people returning. The two becoming one. The future of the planet, he's saying, is Genesis again. A new Genesis. Because what was Genesis all about? Come on. Chapters 1, 2, part of 3 shows you. It's God and people dwelling together. That's what God's after. Verse 3 shows you. That's what John's seeing too. I heard a loud voice saying, look, you got to see this. God's, what's the word? Dwelling place. Where? In heaven? No. 
now among his people on earth, and he will dwell with them. This is telling you what we were originally made for. Right relationship, perfect relationship, ourselves, God, other people, creation. But we've lost all that through sin. One day we will get back. It's called the new Genesis. That's what it is. The planet, not destroyed, remade. The power of heaven invading earth in such a way, it changes, renews everything. Number one, that's what it is. Number two, though, we should ask, well, what does this mean? What does it mean for us today? What does this show us? I want to give you now four implications of this teaching, four things this shows us. This shows us, first of all, let's go through these. I could give you 10, only got time for four. Uh, if that, I'm squeezing a few of these in here. Uh, first of all, this shows us family and friendship as forever. Look at what the verse says. This says, God's dwelling place is now among who? The people. Who is there in the new heavens and new earth? The people of God. The people of God. A few years ago, uh, one of Carrie's and my, one of our closest friends, he was a minister, uh, he passed away, actually unexpectedly. Uh, a college football player, so strong on the outside, but he fought a battle with depression for years on the inside, and he, and he wouldn't win. And he went up into the mountains of Colorado, wasn't heard from, and a few days later, they discovered his body. It broke our hearts. I wept at his funeral, had dreams about him for years. Anybody ever had that happen to him? Yeah. But yet, if all, this is true, if all things are made new, what about, what about him? What about my friend? What about your friends, your loved ones? What about those you've lost? This is telling you, they're there. They're there. They are there in the new heavens and new earth. And do you know what? This ought to change how you and I face death. And here's how. Because here it is. My friend is dead and lost versus my friend's just gone for a little while. It makes all the difference. My child is lost and gone. My mother, parent, grandparent, gone and lost forever is different than they're just gone for a little while. It changes the way we see death. Dallas Willard, the great theologian, he put it like this. He says, quote, once we've grasped our situation in God's full world, the startling disregard Jesus and the New Testament writers had for physical death suddenly makes sense. Anyone who realizes that reality is God's and has seen a little bit of what God has already done, specifically Jesus, will understand that such a paradise would be no problem at all. And there God will preserve every one of his treasured friends in the wholeness of their personal existence precisely because he treasures them in that form. Do you know God loves how he made you? Do you know that? How he made you, yeah. He goes on to say, could he enjoy their fellowship? Could they serve him if they were dead? Listen, those you've lost, Revelation tells us, you'll get back. Those who have lost you, Right? We'll get you back. What we, this is what it's telling us, what we taste in seed form, in friendship and family, will blossom into the full flower of all that we long for one day in that day. Because in the kingdom of God, family and friendship are forever. It's the first implication. Second implication. This shows us, though, at the same time, evil as ending. Here it is. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You say, well, what's the old order? Oh, this tells you. The old order of the world is mourning, crying, pain, and death. Sound about right? 
That's what life is like for much of the world today. Mourning, crying, pain, and death, but not in the new heavens and the new earth. If you've ever seen the, the, the movie or read the really long book, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, made into a movie like 20 times, by the way. It's such a great story. The ending of the movie describes, I think, perfectly this aspect of the new heavens and the new earth. And the story, it's about a main character, a guy named Dantes, and he has been wrongly accused. He's been wrongly imprisoned. He's had his family stolen all by his best friend, Mondego, who betrays him. And so Dantes spends 14 years on this island prison. Uh, he escapes there thanks to an old priest who educates him. This old priest tells him where this treasure is. And so he escapes. And with the treasure he's found, he's able to remake himself. He's reborn into a new person, the Count of Monte Cristo. And he goes back and he confronts his friend about what he's done. When the truth comes out, Dantes offers his former betrayer, the chance to repent and make things right. But Monaco won't do it. Instead, he attacks Dantes. And the end of the movie ends with Dantes stabbing him through and killing him in a sword fight. You say, well, that's kind of harsh and dark. But listen, when you watch the movie, you cheered. <laughs> you liked that part. It was what you'd waited two hours to see, right? You're glad for Why? Because evil has ended justice was served when you've lived through real injustice real pain real evil what do you want for it most you want for it to be ended because even mercy has its limits i want you to hear that even mercy has its limits and by the way this right here this point this is where other faith systems fall flat hinduism buddhism they claim there isn't really evil it's just an illusion you just think that you feel it rape you just it's not really bad you know uh, uh hunger just an illusion corrupt government just an illusion pain you're you're, you're imagining it but you know different we know different. And so does the maker of the world. God is patient with us now, with me, with you. Like Dantes, he offers everyone who's betrayed him the chance to repent and make things right. But in the end, even God's mercy will have its limit. And justice will come, justice will be served, and all the earth will rejoice, for evil has ended. Third implication. This shows us also creation as proclamation. Let me show you what I mean. Recently, my family, here comes a story. Carrie and I took our kids hiking. Hiking. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent of kids in the 21st century, when you announce this, you'll be greeted with blank stares. As there was no mention of a screen, a device, a video game, a movie, or air conditioning. Now, Carrie and I, we, you should know, we, we sort of pride ourselves on keeping some hard and fast rules about screens in our home because you should know this, by the way. No research has ever shown you the more you stare at a screen, the better it is for your brain. Nothing ever shows you that. Now, we do have kids. We do outside stuff all the time. They play sports, do mountains, beaches, all that stuff. But you know, if you've got kids, grandkids today, trying to keep screens to a minimum in your life is like trying to keep sand to a minimum on your feet in the desert. It's just always there. But we took our kids hiking, and at first, yes, there was, as they say, some weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right. But lo and behold, when they got not too far into it, and they found, you know, rocks to climb on and creatures to look at and caves to explore, that words like, this is amazing. And words like, I'm so glad we came. Words like, this was way better than I thought, began to tumble out of their mouths. Do you know what never makes you wonder if there's a God? A video game. 
You know what never makes you glad to be alive? Watching television. You know what never leads your heart into worship and encounter with the divine? Checking your apps. Looks at maybe the Mosaic app. We'll give you a little, we'll give you a little fudge factor on that. I'm just kidding. All right. Why is that? Because creation, though it's fallen, though it's broken, though there's pain, earthquakes, tornadoes, creation still proclaims the glory of God, Psalm 19. And so what the heavens and the new earth tell you, show us, is that when you, what you see in a sunset, what you want in that waterfall, when your, when your jaw drops at that view, that's what you will have for forever heart led into worship because the fullness of creation will be revealed. And so when it says here in Revelation 21, and there was no longer any sea, that's not saying there won't be an ocean, so yeah, we could go ahead and trash the ones we got now. No, what every commentator says and takes great pains to explain is that the sea, you've got to know this, the sea in ancient cultures, go read all the Psalms, the sea was a metaphor for untamable evil. Evil that couldn't be controlled, couldn't be understood. This is telling you this is no longer any evil. It's gone from creation. Like the prophet saw, the wolf will lay down with the lamb. Children will be able to play in the snake's nest and not be hurt, stung, bitten, devoured, poisoned. Think about, think about all the, the worlds uh, from all the movies that you love, right? I mean, think of that opening scene from A Lion King, the whatever noise that creature makes, right? I mean, the sunset, the music, the, uh, the, the vast savanna. I mean, think about that shot from, uh, from Black Panther, right, where they're flying over and into Wakanda. You're like, man, I want to get inside that place. Think about Pandora from Avatar, Naboo in Star Wars, same thing. Over and over again, why do we keep making movies about beautiful, unspoiled, picturesque worlds we long to get into? Oh, it's because we were built for that. We just can't help it. That's what the human heart comes pre-wired with. And what we, this is telling us, long to get inside of now. We will get inside then, one day. Creation is proclamation. It speaks of the world to come. Fourth implication. This shows us responsibility as reward. Do you know what the worst job in the world is? Some of you are saying, I'm working in that one. That's my job right now. No, the worst job in the world is in a task, is in a position. The worst job is one in which you are not recognized for your work, where what you do is overlooked, unseen, and taken for granted. And when that happens, and that can all happen to us to an extent, no matter where we work, we cry out, it shouldn't be like that. Right? We do that. Because there's something in us. There's a, there's a righteous longing for reward, for recognition. Some of you say, no, we Christians shouldn't long for a reward. Jesus keeps promising you he's going to reward you. He keeps promising, my reward is with me. Well, who's he giving it to? <laughs> Just people, right? Let's not be holier than Jesus. right? Because we, we long for righteous recognition. We want to know that what, our, what we do, our work will be seen. It will last. And do you know, that's exactly what the new heavens and the new earth promise you right here. Look at this. Jesus says, those who are victorious, who cling to me, faithful to me, labor for me, will inherit. What do they inherit? Come on. What's all of this? <laughs> Everything, the new heavens and the new earth. Guess what the people of God get? Everything. They'll inherit the new earth. It'll belong to us like Eden belonged to Adam and Eve, right? No sin, no decay, and yet there were still things to be tended there. Listen, when God put Adam and Eve in a garden to work, it wasn't for show. No. 
Because work is a part of a great life. And what you are doing right now, whatever job it is, that's just training for forever. It's just, we're on the job, fly, you know, training for eternity. Because when you labor now, the things you're responsible for right now, when you feel that longing for what you do, for who you are to make a difference, that's what you were built for. And that'll be like without sin, without decay, without evil to get in the way. All your responsibilities, all your labor will be rewarded and be rewarding at the same time. This shows us how we handle our responsibilities now. Now, we'll be rewarded then. Don't you love it? Yes. That's what the new heavens and the new earth mean. Friendship and family as forever. Evil as ending. Creation as proclamation. Responsibility as reward. That's what it is. That's what it means. Here's why we need it. Number three. It's easy when you read this, of course, to forget who it's written to. John was writing this to who? Well, to Christians under intense persecution who were being tortured and maimed and killed for their faith. Some of them had their heads drilled open and molten lead poured inside while they were still alive. Others were impaled on poles covered with pitch lit on fire for the pleasure of the emperor. Families torn apart, children growing up without parents. What could John give anybody in that situation that could fill them with such courage That they could die with such dignity, live with such conviction, that in a few generations they would change the course of history and change the Roman Empire from the inside out. No bullets fired, no bombs dropped. It's a simple fact of history. That's what happened. That's what the Christians did. What did John give them that could enable them to live like that? Oh, he gave them here something that was in short supply in their day and in short supply in ours as well. John gave them, here it is, a living hope. He gave them a living hope. That's what they needed then. That's what we need today. He gave them, we need today, a living hope. And here's why. All the, uh, the New Testament writers, over and over again, they're all like, hope this, hope that, hope, 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 hope. Why? It's because this, the New Testament's trying to tell you as loud as it can say, as clearly as you can hear it, that you and I are unavoidably, permanently hope-based creatures. What we believe about the future impacts how we live right now. We're hope-based creatures. What we believe about the future impacts how we live right now. John says, here's a living hope. It should impact how you live now. Now, in contrast to the new heavens and the new earth, let me give you a different perspective. Uh, This different perspective is from someone, you may know the name, from Somerset Mom. Somerset Mom was a British atheist writer, 20th century, and this is what he had to say about the atheist's view of the world to come. He said, quote, The astronomer tells us that, at long last, the universe will again attain the age of equilibrium when nothing more can happen, but eons and eons before that, human life will have disappeared. Do you suppose it will matter that we ever existed? We will have been a chapter in the history of the universe as pointless as the chapter about the strange monsters that inhabited the primeval earth. If one puts aside the existence of God and survival after life as too doubtful, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, saying that's all there is, if I'm neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself what I'm here for and how in these circumstances I must conduct myself. Now the answer is so plain but so unpalatable that most will not face it. 
There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. He's saying, listen, even my fellow atheists don't want to face this full in the face. But mom went on to write a novel called Of Human Bondage. Maybe you were forced to read that one. And in the novel, we meet a young man named Philip Carey, probably mom's autobiographical avatar. And uh, and Philip Carey, in the story, Philip loses his faith early on in life. And he believes that when you die, you rot. The sun's just going to burn out one day. No one will remember you. Your life's totally meaningless. But Philip Carey, you see his story, he never realizes just what that means for how he should live. And the pivotal moment of the story comes one day, Philip Carey is in London, sitting on a park bench, and he realizes this. He realizes, quote, there was no meaning in life. Man by living served no end. Life was insignificant. Death was without consequence. And at last it seemed to Philip that any burden of responsibility was taken from him. And for the first time, he was utterly free, but he realized he could never be happy. What's mom? What's this atheist showing us? He's showing us, if there's no God, come on, there's no hope. There's no hope, no meaning. Now, thankfully, thankfully, mom was writing Philip Carey in a way to intellectually live out that philosophy and the worldview. But that's in contrast to the way the average person in Austin lives out that same worldview. I think the average person in Austin, they walk around, they say this. They say, there's no such thing as God. Christianity is a crock. Jesus is a joke. I can live any way I want. There is no such thing as right and wrong, but I believe in love and peace and justice and human rights. If this is you, thanks for being here, by the way. At least, this is you, for real. At least have the guts, okay, the honesty of Somerset Mom to admit. If there's no God, right, then human rights and justice and words like goodness and love, those are a joke. They're literally made up and filled in with whatever you say it is right now in your cultural moment, which, by the way, was different 50 years ago, which, by the way, will be different in 50 years from now if there's no new heavens and new earth. That's called, hear me, a dead hope. And that's the reason in the story Philip Carey struggled. But do you know the reason why most of us struggle? You came in with struggles today. Why most of us struggle today, you know, a small percentage of us, of you, you may be struggling like Philip Carey because you got no hope or a dead hope. But most of us struggle when we struggle because we have, in contrast to those things, we have a decaying hope. A decaying hope. Not no hope, not dead. A decaying hope. Why? What's that? Well, over the years, when Carrie and I, when we've struggled, uh, it's usually for two different reasons. When I'm struggling, it's usually because of work or the church, uh, which means you, by the way. <laughs> it's you. That's what it means to be a pastor. It's part of it. And she turns to me and she says, it's okay, Morgan. Trust the Lord. We're going to get through. It's going to be fine. But when she's struggling, usually not the church. It's usually, you know, one of the kids. It's our family. It's me. And so I turn to her and I say, Get your faith up, woman. What's wrong with you? No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I don't, I, don't, I don't say that. I may have tried that once. And by the way, that's all it takes for a stupid husband to try that once. Don't do that. But the real reason when we struggle, the real reason you struggle when you struggle is because our hopes are all in things that decay, that decay, that decay. Even if you have the perfect family life as a parent, right? Kids healthy, they're all, you know, growing up, they all love you, it's all good. Let me tell you, one day they're all going to leave you. They're all going to go away. They're going to move away. Some of you are saying, I wish they'd all leave me in the middle, hang around a little too long. No, not, no one here, right? right. They're going to get a job, they're going to move away. Some of them 
may even die before you do. Some of you are saying, man, my, my meaning in life is all about, man, looking good, looking hot. Morgan, you have no idea how hard I worked to get here like this today. If that's you, let me tell you, that's all going to go away. It's all going to decay. Your body's going to betray you. One day it's all going to fall out, sag, fade, whatever. <laughs> Decaying hope. If you think you're going to be eternally successful, right? Great no matter what. Look at that professional athlete. Man, they just show you sooner than later what's going to happen to all of us in some way, body or mind betray us, right? Everything you place your hope in in this world is decaying. It's just a matter of time before it overtakes you. It's not pleasant, but it is true. It's like Johnny Cash saying, everyone I know goes away in the end. And if you, if your hope, if what you place your confidence in is something in this life, you will struggle. Oh, but if Your hope is in this, a living hope where one day all things are made new, where beauty uh, and life exist and love exists forever. And you know that every day you just take one step closer to being in that living hope for forever. It'll pull your heart out of that stupid coffin. All your hopes are decaying in right now. You can have a living hope. It pulls out of all the anger in our culture from fighting or being mad or angry or whatever. If it doesn't go our way, listen, when you know you have this, you can have the courage it takes to walk through any season of life, any season of history. That's why we need this. We need a living hope. Finally, fourthly, though, how can we get it? How can we get it? Look at this verse five. I love this. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now, think about that. No, seriously, think about that for a moment. What if all your pain were made new? So you're saying, I don't really have very much. You just haven't lived long enough. What if every dream you ever had that never came to pass really was made new and you got that? What if your body was made new, if it's broken, filled with pain? What if your nightmares were gone and your life and heart were filled with peace and hope? The pain, the sting was removed. What if all the loss you've experienced was undone? What would that be like, it would be like this. It would be like what this is promising. What Jesus Christ, and by the way, when a man comes back from the dead, I'm pretty sure I want to believe whatever he's got to say, right? He promises you this is what it will be like. Let me put it to you like this. The Christian doctrine of the new heavens and the new earth says that what we receive with Jesus in eternity isn't just a consolation prize for the life we always wanted but never got. It will be the life we always wanted and what we receive then will be all the greater for having gone through what we have been through now. That's what it means. It'll be all the greater then for what you've gone through now. Uh, A couple of years ago, one of my sons played on a baseball team. I get to talk about baseball, right? I love that. Uh, the, The team was, to put it bluntly, it was horrendous. Now everybody say that word with me. Say horrendous. Yeah, that was our team. I came back from the first practice and I told my wife, I said, I don't think we're going to win a single game this year. It was that bad, that bad. And so for the first half of the season, sure enough, no wins. Blown out. Week after week, game after game. And when it finally came, we had a chance to win against one other team, against the only other team that was winless. We were up by seven runs with two innings to play. 
Oh, but they, they found, we found a way to lose. It came down, everything decayed, all right? Came down to the last inning. The other team was hitting with the bases loaded. We were still up by two. Two outs, two strikes on the batter. Bases loaded, and the batter for the other team strikes out. Game over, except no, because the catcher drops the third strike, which means the play isn't over, triggering a series of five errors, even, each more impossible to commit than the last. The catcher, number one, drops the ball, but all he had to do was touch home plate with the ball. He picked it up, and the game would have been over, but does he do that? No. He could have just tagged the runner coming home from third, who had to run on the plate. Does he do that? No. He could have tagged the hitter, who went back to the dugout, but then ran straight back past him. Could have tagged him twice. Does he do that? No. The catcher takes off for first base with the ball. As we are screaming at him, throw the ball, for the love of God. Would you throw the ball? He throws it to the first baseman. Who drops it? Next two hitters, two ground balls, a second baseman, two more errors, game over, we lose. My son, super competitive, cried the whole way home, true. I texted his mom, I said, you should meet us on the porch. And sure enough, we get home, she was there, we took him inside, fed him ice cream and sent him to bed. I told her, I said, that... I played baseball for years. High school, college, kid, coach for years. That was the most humiliating loss. It's like the princess bride, you know, humiliations galore. Ever been a part of, we may actually never win a game, but something happened to that horrendous team. It came back, it won game after game after game, every other game to end the season, five in a row, six in a row, ended finishing one game under 500 for the year. We snuck into the playoffs and into the first game, we faced a team that had crushed us twice in the regular season. But we blew them out. One of our kids hit a grand slam. We haven't like hit one to the fence the whole year. Now we're hitting them over, apparently. Win number one. Game two, semifinal against the number one team. Only lost one game by one run. This time we hold them in the last inning with the bases loaded. Now we're on to the championship game for the whole league, which judging by our attitude in the dugout was like this preseason scrimmage. No one was nervous. Kids are laughing, right? They're like, can't even believe we're here. You know, what are we doing here? No one was uptight. They're playing grab butt in the dugout, poking each other, you know, spitting seeds, all that. We buried that top team to win the championship. They were laughing loose. Why? Here's why. Because the worst thing that could have ever happened to them, the worst loss they could have ever experienced, it had already happened. Nothing could touch them now. Yeah. True story. And you know what, looking back on it, I saw something. You're getting where I'm going with this. All the nightmare from that humiliating loss the weeks before, all the nightmare did was make the championship moment, the resurrection moment, that much sweeter. And that's what the new heavens and the new earth mean for you today. In the new heavens and new earth, at the renewal, at the genesis again of all things, you will find those you've lost. You will become what you were meant to be. The power of heaven will invade our planet and it will be every hope, every longing, every desire we've ever had. If you don't get it here, you're gonna get it then. The nightmare of what you have gone through in this life will make that day, that life, that world all the sweeter. That's what Jesus promises. And do you know, do you know how that can happen? It's because of the one who went through the great nightmare for us in our place. Because of the one though, he made all things, through him was made all things. 
He was himself unmade. Jesus Christ on the cross experienced the greatest longing the human heart could have ever had for fellowship with God. He cried out to God on the cross, my father, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He longed for heaven, but he got hell in the moment. Jesus Christ experienced our cosmic hopelessness. He was pulled apart and died. But do you know what his final words were? Come on. He said, it is finished. Say, what was finished? Everything. (laughs) Everything needed to save the universe. And did you know, he says the same thing here. Oh, he was dead. Now he's alive. Verse six, he said to John, it is what? Done. Finished. Completed. I am the Alpha and the Omega beginning and in Jesus Christ lived the death we couldn't die, died the death we couldn't die. He lived the life we couldn't live, triumphed over every evil, over every supernatural power. And then he triumphed over decay, death, the grave was resurrected so that when you see him, you see the first fruits, the proof of what is to come, the down payment on the new heavens and new earth. And all those who were his, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have turned their back on sin and self and said, Jesus, I trust you. One day you're going to save me through death. Bring me there. Those who have given him everything. Oh, those are the ones here. The victorious who make it in. You say, what can I do with all this today? Let me quickly apply this three ways as we close. Application number one. Let me encourage you to grab hold of hope with all your heart. Because hope, you say, this is in the pie in the sky. No. Hope is practical in the same way oxygen is. Your, your, your heart, in a way, doesn't beat without it. Listen, the Christians who have made the biggest difference in history are those who have kept the world to come at the forefront of their thinking and minds. It's true. Second application, let me encourage you to work hard with all that you've got, all your hands. See, what it means for us to do mission, right? It's our core value here, mission. We do mission, Colby said, in light of all of this, the new heavens and the new earth. We preach repentance in his name. We cast out devils in his name. We work for justice in his name. We steward the earth in his name. Let me ask you, what gift or talent do you have? Oh, you use that in light of the world to come. How can you make the world now a bit more like it'll be then? That's Christian mission. Third and finally, please remember today, nothing is ever really lost. Jonathan Edwards, great American theologian, when he was 18, 18, preached his very first sermon, got up in front of the church, studied Revelation, new heavens, new earth. He looked out at the congregants, people there that day, and he said, let me give you three reasons why the Christian can have hope and be happy today. He said this first, these hang on my wall, by the way, your bad things will turn out for good. Number two, your good things can never be taken from you. And number three, your best things are yet to come.